Well, thank you, John. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll open up there in just a few moments. If you watched TV back in the 1970s, now I hate to date myself because I know I don't look that old. I don't look like I could have watched TV in the 70s. I actually did and remember it. But if you watched TV back in the 1970s, you may remember Ella Fitzgerald in a little commercial she sang on, Is It Real or Is It? Yeah, anybody remember that? Yeah, is it real or is it? Yeah, that's what I always thought. Is it real or is it Memorex? So I went looking for that. I wanted to show you that commercial. Problem was I couldn't find is it real or is it Memorex. This is what I found. Check this out. This will strike your memory. And uh, let's just watch this. If you'd like to hear Ella Fitzgerald's voice crystal clear, you'll record on new Memorex MRX3 cassette tape. It reproduces live sound with such crystal clear fidelity, you'll have to ask, is it Ella or is it MRX3? Is it live or is it Memorex? Every commercial I found said, is it live or is it Memorex? But my memory said, is it, is it real or is it Memorex? But you know what, it really doesn't matter because, because is it real? Or is it a counterfeit? Is it live? Or is it a copy? That's the point I wanted to make this morning. Because I want to ask you this question. Is your salvation, is your faith real? Or is it a copy? Is your faith live and living? Or is it a counterfeit? That is a very compelling question. Uh, and, and the, we'd follow it up by asking this question. How, how do you know, how do you know if your faith is real? How, how do you know if it's real? And so this morning, what I want us to wrap our minds around, uh, that question, but even more importantly, I, I want to get our minds around, before we're done, I want, I want us to get our minds around what is the answer to that? How, how do you know? And I want you to know, but I want you to know how and why you can know, because I believe uh, that's what God wants you to know. Now, I knew this day was coming, and we've been in the book of Hebrews, and, and uh, I read through it uh, several times. And uh, if you've been with us in the study of Hebrews, you kind of knew that this day was coming where we had to to wrestle with a text that is particularly difficult uh, to comprehend and to understand. Uh, I really thought, and I don't know why I thought this, but somehow I thought when I got through chapter 6 in that difficult passage, uh, 1 through 12, that we would have Hebrews whipped. Well, and then I got to look in the head and I thought, you know, this thing gets pretty challenging here in Hebrews chapter 10. And so we're going to unpack in just a moment. We're going to read and then look at what I believe is one of the three or four most difficult uh, sections of Scripture in all of the New Testament to understand and to interpret. Now, some of you are new today, and, we're, or, or, and in the last couple of weeks, we're so glad that you're here. But I want to catch you up this morning kind of to where we are, because we have been in the study of the book of Hebrews. And without any question, Hebrews is the most Old Testament of all the New Testament books. And because it is, it is also the most Jewish of all the New Testament books, and what that does to Gentiles, like most, if not all of us, is it makes it a little bit challenging for us 
to comprehend and to interpret. And so, uh, yet yeah, we've been in it. It's been a, it's been a rich study. Uh, but there, there's some challenges about it. And, and as we've read through it, probably, uh, What's really interesting about the book of Hebrews is it contains some warnings and we did, we haven't really, we've talked about all of them, but we really haven't camped out on the issue. But there are a number of warnings in chapter one, or excuse me, chapter two, verse one, the writer talks about being careful that you do not drift away. And then in verse three, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And then if we get to chapter 3, in fact, you may want to just turn back uh, to chapter 3. I want to read quickly three verses, beginning in verse 6. Verse 6, he says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And then look down to verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now watch this leading you to fall away from the living God. And then if you look in verse 14, he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then in the in the balance of chapter 3 and chapter 4, he talks about do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. And then on our way back to 10, look in chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, where the writer says it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared uh, in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. He says it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own shame. And then our text that we're going to look at today, and then even there's another warning over in chapter 12, uh, beginning or around about verse 20. Now, the reason I point all that out is because maybe one of the most challenging aspects of of preaching through the book is trying to discover who are the warning passages intended for. I mean, who is the writer talking to when he gives the warnings? And even another question that uh, is kind of interesting, and I'm, I'm not sure I know the answer to is is every warning passage addressed to the same group of people? And so that kind of makes this thing challenging. Who is he talking to? And that's kind of a question we dealt with a little bit in chapter 6. We'll talk about it this morning. But but I want you to think with me. I believe that that, that the, the writer was, was writing to a church um, that was perhaps similar to ours from the standpoint of his audience had a number of, of maturing believers that were followers of Christ. But I believe his audience probably also had a few new or, or not yet mature believers. But also it seems like from the, from the wording that mixed in his audience were those who, who had not yet believed or who had come up to the point of belief and, and were thinking about following Christ. But because of the difficulty, because of the hardship, they were about to defect back to Judaism. And so there were some that were considering Christ. But they were not sure if they really wanted to follow. And perhaps in our audience, 
There are those who are maturing believers. There are those who, who are, uh, who are maybe not yet mature, but you are a believer and, and you're wanting to, to grow and move forward. Uh, but there's also in the auditorium this morning some of you who have yet to cross over the line fully, totally to Jesus. And so I think that was kind of uh, the context. So, so having said all that, we need to read our passage and then we got to move quickly. But join with me. We'll pick up in verse 26. Listen to the writer. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul will have or has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Shall we pray together? Father, as we in the next few minutes um, look at this challenging passage of Scripture, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be quickened, that our eyes would be open, and God, that we would see the truth and the significance of the passage and the ramifications for those who choose not to genuinely follow Jesus. And so, God, would you have your way in every heart and life this morning, and we'll be careful to give you the glory. God, for the person who is yet to decide what to do with Jesus, Lord, I pray that the the clear warning from Scripture that we've looked at this morning would shake their hearts and their souls this morning. It is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so, Father, for that man, that woman, that young person, that today would be the day that they would decide, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. So come and meet with us, and we'll be careful, Father, to praise Jesus because he's worthy. And I ask it in his awesome, mighty, gracious name. Amen. Well, this passage produces as much angst and concern, worry, or or uncertainty probably as any other text in, in all of the scripture. And so we kind of began with that monumental, que- monumental question, is your faith real? Well, as you read through this, you might even have asked a, another question. Uh, not only is it real, but it, if it is real, can you lose it? 
Because it seems like, or at least it appears like in reading some of the warning passages, there's this kind of danger. Uh, and so uh, scholars and theologians, they've, they've exegeted this passage. They've exposited this passage. They've debated this passage for centuries. Men far greater and far smarter than I have wrestled with this, uh, this text in an attempt to accurately and correctly translate and apply it to the New Testament uh, and to believers Everywhere, and I think the key is you got to wrap your mind around who the audience is. And, and as I've shared, I think it was a mixed audience. I think there, there's believers, and, and and there's not yet believers, and that's kind of where I land on this. And uh, and so kind of like our church today. But but I think we need to ask a couple questions of the text this morning. And the first question that I want to ask is is who is it that's being warned? And we've kind of talked about that. And, and I'll give you four of the most. Uh, Probably the most common or most oft-presented uh, solutions. Let me just give you a couple of them. We'll dismiss fairly quickly. The first is what we would call the Armenian, what many would call the Armenian view, and that is that the, the passage, the warnings in question, are to true believers, and they actually teach that you can lose your salvation. Now, there, I got a couple major issues with that. Number one, other places in Scripture clearly affirm that uh, that if you're genuinely converted that no one can snatch you out of the hand of Jesus. In fact, in our own text in Hebrews, it talks about Jesus uh, has perfected for all time by one sacrifice, those who are being sanctified. Uh, a, a second problem with that view, particularly if you, if you look at the warning in chapter 6, if you believe that you can lose your salvation, that these, these warnings teach that you could lose your salvation, the passage in Hebrews 6 says that it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. And so if you lose it, it's gone. You're done. So Scripture does, in other places doesn't teach that. And so we can dismiss the first view. The second view is that it's a true believer, but it's kind of a hypothetical apostasy. And, and basically they say, well, well, what the writer's saying is that, that, that even though you're a true believer, uh, it's pot, you know, you could apostatize, you could, you could become an apostate, you could fall away from the faith, but this, but it's all hypothetical, and, and I don't have time to go into that. We treat that in some detail in the message on chapter six, so you can look at that online or on iTunes, you can go back and, and, and pick up a fuller discussion. But let me just talk about the, the, the three, or the two probably most prominent views. Uh, the third one would be that it's, it's a reference to true believers, and that really it's, it deals with the loss of reward. And many scholars, uh, or a number of scholars whom I respect, uh, uh, treat this passage this way. And uh, they they camp out on a couple significant uh, statements that, that really say or point to uh, this true believer. And let me give you a couple examples. They look in, in chapter uh, 10, verses um, twenty. Eight, I believe it is. Let me see if I can find. I think it's in verse twenty-eight, uh, where it says. Uh, actually, it's verse twenty-nine. In the middle of the verse, it says, "And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified." And they say, "Wait a minute! These people have been sanctified." And they would also look. They talk of just the general nature. They had been. They had. They had received the knowledge of the truth, and then they even say, "Hey, look down and." In, uh, in the end of uh, verse 31 where it talks about the Lord will judge his people. And then even in verse, I think, 37 or 38 where it talks about the righteous shall live by faith. And so there's a compelling argument 
uh, that it was true believers. Uh, but but where where I think the, the great problem lies is because the, the idea is this is a reference to true believers. They don't lose their salvation, but they lose all of their war- rewards and they're, and they're punished greatly. And they would even point to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 4 and 5. Uh, well, you just jot that in your margin. You could read that. That's about the, the man who had his father's wife. And the scripture says, uh, deliver this man up to Satan to be t- literally for his, for his flesh to be destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, but kind of the issue, here's where I think this is extremely difficult, uh, to, to accept. It is because it says in verse 28, uh, in, in the Old Testament, someone died if they broke the law of Moses on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then he makes this statement, how much worse does someone deserve to be punished who is trampled under feet of the Son of God? It just seems to me like that it's talking not about losing your rewards, but it's talking about an eternal punishment. In fact, if you notice there in, um, I think it's in verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. Now look at this, that consumed the adversaries. And so, I, so that's a difficult view. The fourth view, the one that we took when we went through chapter 6 and the one uh, that I would uh, submit to you this morning is that it's talking to false believers, those who, who have either professed a faith and, and it wasn't genuine or those who have came right up to faith, had seen it, had heard it, had, had been encouraged by it, convicted of it, and yet decided, you know what, that's really... Not what I want. Now that view has its problems without question. Uh, it, again, the same phrase, you know, when it talks about profaning the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, it, it's kind of problematic, but I, I can give you two p- potential explanations. One is that grammatically that could be a reference to Jesus because listen to the context in, in verse 29. Just, just listen to the context of verse 29 and it could be uh, referring to Jesus because it says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? It could be a reference to Jesus because Jesus actually prayed in John seventeen nineteen and, and said in his high priestly prayer, I have consecrated myself or I have sanctified myself. Uh, so, so that is a, a possibility. Uh, to explain that also a possibility in 1 Corinthians 7, we don't have time to go there, but in talking about marriage, uh, Paul was talking to believers and saying, you, you should stay married to an unbeliever if they are willing, because by your faith, your spouse and your children are sanctified. Doesn't mean that they're saved, but it means they're set apart. And so those are possible explanations. But, but I think when we look at the, the severity of the judgment and the punishment, it it really can't be to believers who have disobeyed. Because it talks about a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. And that is, uh, and then it talks about, way down in verse 38 or 39, we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. And it, it doesn't say destroyed our flesh. Because think about this. Uh, you You are a soul... You have a body. Your body's going to go away. My body's going to go away. But our soul is going to exist forever. Either it's going to be cast out and just, you know and judged in hell, or it's going to spend eternity in heaven with God. And, and so, so I think that verse talks about that, that we're talking about a severe punishment. And, and so, 
for the purposes of our conversation, of my interpretation, I believe the, the, the best way to approach the text is that it's talking to false believers. But really the issue is, and, and, and you can, and you can disagree with me and, and I don't, I, I don't really have a problem. I'm, you know, I, I'm not gonna, you know, it's, sometimes it's, I can stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, this is how it is. When it comes to the warning passages, I can't say that. I think I'm right. Uh, and I have reasons. But if you say, no, Pastor Mike, I think this is it, you can have some reasons. But that's really, but, but, but let's get past that because, because at the end of the day, uh, what matters is how you respond to the warning. Because it's written here, it's included here, and so it should... Uh, challenge all of us. And so let's deal with a second question uh, this morning. And, and that is, what is the warning or, or kind of what is the issue? Notice in verse 26, what he says is, is for if we go on sinning deliberately. Now, what's he talking about that? Because, because you sin, I sin, we all sin. Believers sin. So as he's saying, you know, if, if you give your life to Christ, and in fact, I read uh, somebody way back when said that if anybody, that after baptism, if anybody sinned, then this applied to them. I'm thinking, man, I'm in trouble. I'm in a lot of trouble. I mean, it's, it's early in the day and I, I've already passed. You know, I'm already guilty. The idea here, I believe what the writer is saying when you, when you, when you consider the the word, what it means, the terminology, the, the verb tense, and all those things. What he's talking about is, is if a person has a continual lifestyle of sin and disobedience without response to the holy things of God. After that, you know, when they realize that, hey, Jesus died for sin and God has an expectation for those who truly believe to live a lifestyle and to pursue a life of holiness. And, and, and if, if they say, no, thanks, but no thanks, uh, I'm going to do my own thing. He says there, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And so let me just say it this way. Uh, the writer notes here... Uh, if Jesus is better than angels, if Jesus is better than Moses, if Jesus has a better priesthood, if Jesus offered a better sacrifice, if Jesus is better than Melchizedek, in fact, if Jesus by a single offering has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, if you get all of that and you learn all of that and you come to know all of that and yet you ignore that, you reject that, you neglect that, and you defect from that, the writer says, listen, if you don't get Jesus, there's nothing else to get. You'll die and go to hell. Because if you don't embrace Jesus, and if you don't embrace his sacrifice, and he spent ten and a half chapters telling us how great that sacrifice is. He's saying, if you don't get that, there's not anything else left for you to get. Nothing else is going to help you. And that is, that is the idea. And now, now what I, what I do want to do is be careful because this isn't talking about the believer who struggles with sin on occasion. Uh, this is about the one whose life hasn't been changed. Now maybe they look like they, maybe they talk like, maybe they even act like they've been changed outwardly, but on the inside, they haven't been changed. John talked about people like that in in first john 
If you'll turn to the right, uh, go past James and Peter. Look at 1 John chapter 2. Listen to verse 19. Verse 19. He's talking about... In fact, let me just get in the middle of... Um, let me pick up 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain, become plain that they are they all are not of us. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying, listen, the one that doesn't that doesn't hold in there. The one that walks away, the, the one that says, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, but then they go out there and you look at their life and their life doesn't measure up. Uh, that's the person that he's talking to here, I believe, in the book of Hebrews. That person isn't genuine. That person isn't real. That person isn't a true a follower of Jesus Christ. They go away and that's what we would call an apostate. What the writer's saying is that person is in grave danger of judgment, there's a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that consumes the Lord's adversaries. Now, I re- listen. I understand that, that if you if, listen, if today's your first time, uh, we don't. You know, I don't preach judgment and hell every week. That's not a popular subject today. But as we preach through the book, it's in here. It's in here. Now, I understand we live in a culture. Man, they, we want a, we want a God of love. We want a, lo- a God of grace. We want a God of mercy. We want a God who's gentle, gentle, and we want a God who is kind. And, and, and we've got all of that. But I mean, uh, this is a happy culture. I mean, the, you, some of you know the song, the happy song. It, it comes out, you know, if you go to the ballpark, you, you may hear, uh, the happy song. Uh, if you watch some of the movies like Despicable Me, this, this song comes up. It's, I think, I don't think it's called a happy song. I think it's just called happy. Uh, but, but here's kind of the chorus of this song. Um, it's because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Because I'm happy, clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. I mean, we, we, we have a culture that wants to be happy. Okay, I understand that. In fact, I, I sat down this week and in, in, uh, in to get my hair cut. And you know, hey, let me just say, when somebody's cutting your hair, you got a captive audience. And, and so I was, I was sharing with this guy a little bit, and, and I was just asking him, and, and man, he talked about how much he liked to work. And, and so finally, I said, well, well, what do you do for the spiritual side of life? And, and he, well, you know, I go spend time with my family and we run around with my animals and we do all this. And, and he said, and, and this is what he said. He said, I just believe that you need to be, I, I believe in happiness, tranquility, and that everybody should just be accepted. And I said, I said, you know, I, I love happiness and tranquility, but, but here's what I know. We've all been marred by our sin. I said, you know, I, I need grace. I need somebody that's going to take away my sin. And so here's what I want you to understand. We have a God of love and grace and mercy and goodness and kindness. But that's only part of the equation. See, you have all that plus justice, righteousness, and holiness. And so you got 
love, mercy, and grace, plus holiness, justice, and righteousness, plus X, because there's some other characteristics of God, equals God. And, and so, and so what God did, because He's so loving and so just, or so loving and so gracious and so merciful, God sent Jesus, put Him on a cross, and God took my sins and your sins, and He dumped our sins on Jesus. And when He dumped our sins on Jesus, He dumped His wrath, His punishment for our sins on Jesus. And so God can freely offer to you and me free grace to us. God want, does God want us to be happy? What God really wants us is to be holy, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so what the writer is saying here, if you say no to that, if you say no to what God's done for you, then you're on your own. And there's nothing, there's no sacrifice left. There's a fearful expectation of judgment. Because listen, the soul that sins shall die. That's what the writer of Proverbs says. Somebody, listen, somebody's got to pay. Now you may think that's harsh because we, again, we live in a culture where they say, man, that's harsh. But I mean, think about this. Uh, we, we have a lady in our church that's friends with the family that, whose daughter disappeared 19 years ago. They found her remains about, uh, about a, four, five, three or four weeks ago. They found out this week that it was their daughter that she was we know, they know that she was murdered. They don't know what else happened to her as a, as like a 19 year old. But I look, but I read that article and I read about the guy that, that molested her and murdered her and two or three others and he's in jail for rape. And, and, our, and, and I'm just saying, man, this guy needs to be punished, right? We, listen, we all know that, listen, sin needs to be punished. And so what God did is God put Jesus on a tree and he punished him for you and me. But what the writer is saying is if you're not willing to accept his punishment in your behalf, then you're on your own. And then he tells us why. Look at verse, uh, let's go down to verse 29 and work our way through this real quickly. It gives three characteristics or three kind of reasons, if you will, why? He says, first of all, how much worse punishment do you think would be deserved by one? Again, he's referring in the Old Testament, man, if, if, if two or three witnesses uh, heard you. In fact, I read this morning in Leviticus, uh, a, a guy had a, had a Jewish mama and an Egyptian daddy, and he blasphemed the name of God. And they heard him blaspheme the name of God, and they brought him to Moses. And Moses said, well, shut him up. We'll see what God says. And, 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 and God says, hey... Everybody that heard him blaspheme my name, they're the ones that are going to stone him. So, so when, when, when you, two or three witnesses, when you broke the law, you deserve to die. And so the writer says, how much, how much worse punishment does somebody deserve if they trample under feet the Son of God? How much worse punishment if they, if they, uh, denigrate, if you will, or profane the blood? Of the covenant that was shed for us. How much worse punishment if they outrage the spirit of grace by saying, but thank you, but no thank you. So the writer's talking about. It. Let me give you a couple examples. I just, I, I, I'm, I'm not totally sure what trample underfoot, what it means to profane the blood of the covenant, what it means to outrage the spirit of grace, but I'll give you a couple, uh, things that I read this week, just some quotes. Uh, let me give you one by Voltaire. Some of you know who Voltaire is. He was a French writer during the Enlightenment period, um, vocal 
antagonist, if you will, of the gospel. He said of Christ, and I, I quote this from, from a, a precept Austin website, of Christ, he said, curse the wretch. In 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice. It took 12 apostles to rear. Ironically, just a few years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society was printing Bibles out of his property. And he's dead, and if he didn't repent, he's in hell. But curse the wretch. That's a picture. Uh, Thomas Paine, a noted antagonist to Christianity, uh, someone noted uh, that, that he made this statement. I would give worlds if I had them that Age of Reason had not been published. Oh, Lord, help me. Christ, help me. Oh, God, what have I done to suffer so much? But there is no God. But if there should be, what will become of me hereafter? Stay with me, for God's sake. Send even a child to stay with me, for it is hell to be alone. If, if ever the devil had an agent, he said, I have been that one. And that's kind of a, maybe a picture of what it means. Now you say, well, that's two or three hundred years ago. But even in our day, Kent Hughes in his commentary uh, gives an illustration of trampling under the foot the Son of God. Uh, In 1991, uh, Harper's Magazine carried a reproduction of a a non-tract published by, of all people, the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Anybody heard of them? Uh, Madison, Wisconsin. They published this tract. Part of it said this. Uh, when it came to Jesus, it talked about uh, attack creation and the miracles and God himself. In coming to Jesus, here's what the track said. It said, and Jesus is a chip off the old block. He said, I and my father are one, and he upheld every jot and tittle of the Old Testament law. He preached the same old judgment, vengeance, and death, and wrath, and distress, and hell, and torture for all nonconformists. He never denounced the subjugation of slaves and women. He, he cursed and withered a fig tree for being Aaron. He mandated burning unbelievers. Uh, and he goes on, he says, the church comply with that. He stole a horse. And he said, and this is what he says. He says, you want me to accept Jesus, but I think I'll pick my own friends. Thank you. I also find Christianity to be morally repugnant. The concepts of original sin, depravity, substitutionary forgiveness and tolerance, eternal punishment and humble worship are all beneath the dignity of intelligent human beings. Now, I think that track captures the essence of what it means to trample underfoot, to profane the blood, and to outrage the spirit of grace. Easy for us to say that. But what the writer intended here, I believe, is that for the person that comes right up to the cross, for the person that comes right up close and and learns all about Jesus and then decides, you know what? I'm not going to follow him. That's what they're doing. They're trampling underfoot the Son of God and profaning the blood of the covenant. And so to reject the truth and to reject Jesus is in effect saying, thank you, God, but no thank you. I'll take my chances. Last question. How do you know if your faith is right? How do you know if your faith is the genuine 
article. That's the million dollar question. Now, uh, I say all that, let me make this statement, and you're going to go, well, too late for that. The writer's point is not to disturb the believer, but to inspire the unbeliever, the pretender, the one who, who has the truth, but hasn't done anything with it yet. And if you've never given your life to Christ, you've got the truth, but you haven't done anything with it. And you've got to decide today, what are you going to do uh, with it? Uh, and so look down in verse 32, and we've got to read a couple of verses. It says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who have treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now watch this. Here's the command. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you have received what is promised. And then verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Here's, here's what I want to say to you. I believe the essence, here's, here's how you know if your faith is real. Here's how you know. Your faith endures. Your faith continues. Your faith keeps on believing. Look back to chapter 3. We read this verse a few minutes ago, verse 14. Listen to verse 14. It says, for, for we have come to share in Christ. Now listen to this. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now let me tell you what that's not saying. That's not saying that you got to hold on to Jesus. And if you don't hold on to Jesus, uh, you're not really saved. What that's saying is, if you're really saved, you're going to hold on to Jesus. You, you're not going to be of those who shrink back. You're not going to be the one who neglects. You're not going to be the one who rejects. You're not going to be the one who defects from the faith. If you're genuinely saved, if you're holding firm to the end, that is evidence that you're saved. Listen, this is, uh, we don't have these verses, but in the parable of the sower, Jesus taught that there's, there's just some people. And this is what bothers, this, this bothers me. Can I just tell you what bothers what bothers me is there are people that name the name of Jesus, but there's no evidence in their life. And they go, oh yeah, something happened back there. But there's no fruit in their life today. Because Jesus taught in the parable of the souls, he said, listen, some falls on, on the ground snatched up. Some falls, it blows up real quick. And they look like they, you know, the plant comes up, looks good. The, the hot sun comes over. But he says, some comes up, man, it's, it's looking good, but it gets choked out by the cares of this world. And all of a sudden, it chokes it out. He says, but there's some. Jesus said, there's some. Man, it falls on the good soil. And it produces. And so here, listen, listen. Church, what concerns me is people who say, Hey, I gave my life to Jesus. But when you look at their life, there's no evidence. There's no fruit. There's no following through. That's who the writer's talking to, in my opinion. Is that person? I mean, I mean, imagine, imagine. I mean, if somebody, Alistair Begg gives a great analogy. If somebody comes up to me and says, "Hey, Mike, are you married?" 
I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't open my wallet and pull out a marriage certificate and say, oh yeah, 22 and a half years ago on September 11th, 1993, I got married in Morganton, North Carolina at Mount Home Baptist Church. Look, here's my certificate. That's not what I would say. Chances are, chances are I would say, hey, I want to introduce you to my wife. These are my kids. We live at 148 Tycove. We have a growing family. Look, I've got my ring. That says to the world I'm married. Now, listen, if, if I said, oh, no, here's the paper. I got married in 1993. I don't live at home. I don't really spend any time with my wife. I, you know, every now and then we get together. I'm really not committed to her. Man, you'd go, what kind of marriage is that? Right? So why would you say, why would somebody say, oh, 23 years ago, I gave my life to Jesus. I'm born again. I don't go to his house. I, I, I don't spend any time with him. I don't really know what he likes or what he doesn't like. But look, hey, I got the paper. I got the paper. The baptism certificate. And so here's, listen to this church, here's what I'm saying. Is there evidence today? Is there evidence today that what you said to Jesus yesterday is real? Because so many people say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's my Lord. I don't believe you have to go to church to be a Christian. Can I just say this? If your faith won't get you to church, how in the world is it going to get you to heaven? So we've got to wrestle with this idea. Billy Graham said the greatest, one of the greatest mission fields in the world is the church. I mean, I, I don't mean this bad. I mean, I should have preached this sermon a couple weeks ago. How do you have 700 people Easter and 400 the next week? I mean, I'm just asking. Oh, I got the certificate. Look, 20 years ago, this happened. No, no. Hey, here's the ring. I'm going to lunch with my wife and my kids today because it's real. And so what you got to do is you got to look in your heart and go, okay, is what I believe, is it real? Because Paul said, and we got to close with this, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, a man ought to examine himself and see whether or not he's in the faith. And what the writer wanted them to do, and I believe what the writer wants us to do, is to examine. Is your faith Real. It's good to have the certificate, but I'm wearing the ring because I want the world to know. It's good to have the baptism way back when, but are you living the life so the world knows? Let's pray. Father, the text is so rich and so full of truth and challenge. And God, I know a message of warning, a message of, we didn't get into detail and in maybe the, the, the judgment aspect of the passage, but a message like this is heavy and it should be because the, the God of love and grace and mercy and goodness and gentleness is the same God who has 
is righteous and holy and just. And so God, a man ought to examine himself. And a man ought to ask, is what I got the real deal? Is what I got genuine? Is it real or is it Memorex? Is it live or is it a counterfeit? And so I just want to ask you, I'm your pastor, I love you. I want God's best for you. Is what you have real? Is it real? If not, today's your day. Today's the day. Your prayer ought to be, God, have, have, have your own way. God, have thine own way in my life. Some of you here this morning, you've been playing Jesus most of your life. And you need to get serious. And so we're going we're gonna to give you an opportunity in just a moment. And we're going to sing this hymn. And if you don't know if yours is real, I, I want to challenge you. Settle it today. Father, in Jesus' name, would you have your way in every heart? God, would you have your way in every life this morning? God, would, would every man, woman, and young person here this morning search their heart and discover if, if it's real? And if it's not, my prayer is that today they'd give their life to Jesus. So God, have your way in every heart, and we'll be careful to give Jesus the glory. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen.